So welcome to the LSE this evening. I'm Dr. Victoria Hans. I'm Head of Environmental Sustainability here at the school. Uh, and I'm delighted this evening to welcome our speaker, Samantha Heath. She's Director of the London Sustainability Exchange and groundbreaking voluntary organisation supporting the delivery of London as the most sustainable world city. She's also a member and uh, former co-chair of the London Sustainable Development Commission and she's spent uh, 10 years in London politics on the London Assembly, 8 years in academia and research and 10 years in civil engineering and her talk this evening is about engineering the economy for real people. Cool. Um, so thank you, Victoria. I thought I must start with this. Um, I, those of you who have read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is, it should no way be associated with the factual body of um, Orthodox Zen Buddhism and um, motorcycles either. So to pretend that I know anything about economics other than what I have learned over the last few years and that I know anything about real people, I think would be um, embarrassing. But I do know a little bit about engineering. So um, we've concocted um, a piece of work which is standing on the shoulders of giants, um, what I'm going to present to you today is a little bit about the work and where our work is at London Sustainability Exchange, what we do, and which theories, which practice, which economists we're building our work on, and what, what theories we're working with, and how we attempt to integrate that into practice, and how we, how we learn that, and what we've learned from the last five to six years of our, of our work. So, as, a, as I said, presenting you the challenge, how we've responded to it, the sort of theories that we're using, and so that would be my, the A to Z of my favourite economists of all time, um, the sort of stories in London that we're beginning to build on, the sort of challenges in London, and then the bit, the denouement, which is the sort of nitty-gritty of how the projects that we're running and the sort of things that we're finding out, and that, that, that's the bit that I, I probably want to get more feedback from yourselves about this, you know, where, where we're going and where you think that we could be improving our practices. So, some of the challenges. We take Brundtland, um, and in a sense, this is a really um, apple, hood, apple hood and mother pie kind of definition, you know, let's live in the future in a fluffy bunny kind of way. F for us, um, the reason why, I, I mean, I love Brundtland, it's really obvious, it's staking the bleeding obvious, but the truth of the matter is, what that means for us in practice is something that we find as a challenge on, on, a, very, on a daily basis, really. Um, and... Just to be really very clear about this, you know, I'm not saying that there is a fat epidemic or obesity epidemic, but there is an issue where half the world is overeating and the other half is, is, is starving. And you could say, in pure economic terms, that actually it's up to the individual if they want to be extra large and they want to live slightly shorter lifespans. But the truth of the matter is there are waste mountains that we need to be managing and living with, and that affects the rest of us. And in terms of air quality, you could very well say, let's price petrol into such a way, but then we do need to manage the poor air quality, and it's the poorer communities in London that suffer disproportionately with the poor air quality that we're living with. So, in a sense, um, sustainability is, is not just about knife crime and the perceptions of knife crime, and certainly not just about environmentalism. And in a sense, what's really important for me is that the perceptions we need to manage very frequently we get lots of surveys out about how people see London as, as, as a more disgusting place than it actually is to live and it's about the perception that's really very important to carry us forward. 
Um, and then coming into the real challenge, um, a lot of politicians, I find, and lots of my former colleagues, constantly talking about economic growth as though that is actually deliverable in, 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 in the really short term. In a sense, we cannot afford to consume more. We've only got one planet to live in. And these are the tensions that I feel in terms of pure um, you know, classical economics that I find very difficult to manage. We have only one planet and therefore, for the UK and London in particular, to constantly be thinking about growth, I find a challenge. Um, and then we go on to how much the reduction would have to be to make it sustainable. And again, I just would like to repeat that I don't think carbon is a replacement proxy for sustainability. It is just an indicator. But um, in terms of the UK, we do have a very high carbon footprint. Um, and in terms of Haringey, you know, just we've picked a borough at random, really. Um, it, is, it is slightly less than the, the national average. But the truth of the matter is we need to get to about 1.7 tonnes of carbon per capita. And so that's why, for me, it's really very important not just to use carbon as a proxy, but to just to begin to use it as, as, as a working indicator. And um, somebody that lots of people know very much about, started to, Stern started to create, um, saying, OK, so we need to limit the amount of carbon we consume, and there is an economic case for doing that. And so, in a sense, he's beginning to talk to the politicians using their own language, a very useful proxy. Um, and in London. In London, the mayor, Ken Livingston, um, a few years ago, and now um, Mr Johnson, have been talking about the fact that London's carbon footprint is reducing. And it's very important information to actually see that there is a dip, there is a reduction. But the concerns that we have is this is just purely direct carbon. And um, some of you will all have read um, Tim Jackson's work on prosperity without growth. And the sort of things that he was beginning to explore is that if... If we constantly just measure direct carbon, we are exporting our carbon, and that is a really difficult issue. Um, and the issues that he was beginning to address, or Tim Jackson was beginning to explore, is how can we get this, this unhooking is a myth, and prosperity, can it, can it, um, can it occur without the growth? Um, and exploring um, how consumption and consumption patterns is something that we feel is really very important. And I'm talking about the appetite for people to actually own less stuff. And the sort of things that I've been vexing myself is, um, you know, there was um, the Thatcherite conversation about, you know, if you're on a bus over 40, you're a failure. Um, you know, is it if you don't have a holiday in Barbados and you don't have a Louis Vuitton handbag? You know, what's that? What could I have more of in my life that doesn't consume carbon? And the only things I came up with academic citations or more sex. So, you know, I find it quite, quite a, a chunky topic, and those are the sorts of things, is that we need to make it desirable to consume less carbon. So it's that kind of, you know, the hunter-gatherer in us that wants more things, but how can we do that if we want to consume less? And just giving you a couple of little lovely pieces of indicators that, um, that the London Sustainable Development Commission have done with Bioregional is we started to map out the various bits of each thing. So we, we looked at consumer goods and what would happen. And we were really shocked at the amount of chunk, the proportion that jewellery had, say, in our carbon footprint. You know, us with the bling over here in the cheap seats. But, you know, reduction in smoking, you know, I was really shocked at that. I was really pleased to see that actually reducing books was wasn't really an issue here. Um, so, you know, the sort of things that we were looking at is that taking carbon, direct carbon, out of the supply chain doesn't quite deliver. The red, red line there 
is, um, the, is, is the target that we need to get to. So that was, that, that, that's a very interesting thing, but the various component parts of what we buy. And then we're thinking buying better is really very important. So maybe one Louis Vuitton handbag in your lifetime, you know, provided it's purchased sustainably and all of those sorts of things. So just a couple of indicators here on the T-shirts and things. The raw materials do make up a huge bit. The, the men's white T-shirt, I don't know why it's a man's, not a woman's, I suppose large. You've got to start somewhere, really. Um, and then um, some shampoo. Um, and the actual materials themselves, the farming, so it's actually having more T-shirts is definitely an issue. Um, and so I take, you know, every time I hear the Chancellor say, we need to have growth, do we want more people to buy more T-shirts? Is that what we're on about? And then I worry about how this looks. Obviously, lots of conversations about meat going into the ink pen study. It's really an interesting little cartoon study here and looking at you know, half, of, half of your lamb chop, more than half in the farming practices. The carbon is, um, is quite high and it's less more about how you cook it. And I was very interested in, in my cup of tea. I'm addicted to tea, so I'm really interested in that, that half the carbon footprint of the cup of tea is me boiling too much water in the morning. So you know, very interesting. So, so beginning to open up the conversation, it's not just what you buy, it's how you cook it, um, which is really very interesting. The sort of things that we've been looking at at London Sustainability Exchange is that the infrastructure being in place is all very well, but it's how we support people to live it, um, and I'll come on to that a little bit more later. So this is another fellow that I thought was really very important to begin to think about because um, reading Tim Jackson's work, I was really inspired to, um, to understand that economic growth might not be um, as juicy as I'd have thought. So delighted last year when Stiglitz produced his Sarkozy work with the dashboard. The thing that I question in my good self is, you know, GDP is still in there. And a lot of the work that Neff have been doing about how you actually replace GDP. Now, I know some, some really quite rude friends of mine said, oh, the French, because they have a really bad GDP, that's why they're interested in looking at something else um, to make themselves look good. But in a sense, some of my work that I would like to begin to think about is how we do replace um, GDP and what we replace it with and what would be the component parts of that dashboard and there are some indicators that NEF have done and there's indicators that London Sustainable Development Commission have done and I, I think it's really that's sort of a public debate and a conversation that I'm really enthused by. So the sort of public perceptions that we find bunkers are really interesting. And this is um, the archetypal Ben Page thing, you know, Londoners, why, hey, they want to pay American taxes, but they want Scandinavian health care. And in a sense, this is just showing you a little bit about that ambivalence that people have. You know, 46% of Londoners agree that it's a, a lively city, but that's changing, and where they disagree that it's clean. And, and that was the thing that came out this morning about some of the perceptions on crime. You know, it is actually much safer in London than a lot of um, um, American U.S. cities, but you wouldn't know that from, from the perceptions. Um, and in a sense, energy, they think it's really very important. But then when you look at the Mori um, work, um, I am prepared to greatly reduce my energy consumption. You know, it's very weak, really, about the percentage of people, 15%, who are prepared to do it, but, you know, and, and tending to agree. So it's a very interesting, patchy conversation. And when I, when I look at this, I'm thinking about what Tolstoy said, is, you know, everybody wants to change the world, they just don't want to do it for themselves. And in a sense, this is the same conversation um, that people people having, you know, it's fine for everybody else to save the planet, but can I carry on flying to Barbados? Um, and so the results here, with Ipsos Mori, that they produced um, just in March here, was that it is, it is that the levels of concern have fallen, and I was interested in the East Anglia study about whether, um, whether because of what's happened there in Climategate, how much that 
that has say, um, changed people's perceptions. Um, and then there was the very interesting thing that Maury did ask, which I thought was a bit bonkers again, is what are their personal um, experiences of climate change? And again, we see that, you know, it depends on the questioning, but 66, uh, sorry, 59% of people said that they did have their own experience. So are we going to have people experiencing their own appendectomy before they actually decide that they've got appendicitis? I, I was interested in how, how people use the science, um, but actually does that actually change their um, attitudes? And in our experience, awareness and knowledge is just a jot. I know smoking kills me. That doesn't stop me having a puff every now and then. Um, so it's an issue around, well, I have an awareness issue, but that doesn't change my behavior. And so those are the sorts of things that at London Sustainability Exchange we're constantly vexing ourselves about. And then, of course, I'm uninterested in the political zeitgeist and the fact that we do um, how this bottom-up, this concept of people being in engaged. And I was interested in the Peter Hall study about, um, it was in 1999, about um, the engagement and the social capital. And actually, it did look, um, all, the, uh, all, all of the comments on that said that actually it is the, um, you know, the, the, the wealthier. It was to do with wealthy communities that do engage. And the thing that I worry about with the big society, given that wealthier communities are more likely to engage, there is going to be more of a disenfranchising. And so the issues that we're working with with our community engagement when we're having an open discussion, we want to make sure that we're not talking just to certain sections of the population. But I found a bit of confusing, contradicting information here. Um, some of you may know that um, local authorities were doing some, some survey work over the last few years as part of the local area agreements. And this is just nothing scientific, but I just mapped the results to the question with, um, you know, do, do you belong to your immediate neighbourhood? And, yeah, people in Richmond and Thames um, look like they belonged a little bit more, and the poorer communities, a bit of a straight line correlation there. And so so poorer communities felt they had less cohesion. Um, but when it came to people who said that they were actually involved in their decision making, we seem to have the reverse information. And I find that really kind of weird. Um, and so we've, we're just looking at that when we're looking at the communities that we engage with, you know, how engaged are they and how does the cohesion work? So the sort of things that um, you will know about is the traditional IPAT, um, you know, carbon and how things are going. But the thing for me was this H, which is, I think it was Sarah Parkin, you might have heard a couple of weeks ago, and it's not times H, it's divided by H, but the social capital being so very important. And this was, for, from our understanding, is that you can have all the um, new nuclear power stations to reduce your carbon in the world. You can have all the infrastructure in place, but the truth of the matter is it's how you use it that's more important. So for us, behavior is way more important than just getting the building box in place. Um, and the reason why I've got my spaghetti boy in there is because we find this social capital so difficult to understand. The physics of environmentalism is not just about how much thickness of insulation you put in, or boiling the economy down to some equations. For us, what we find is that the, the social capital and trying to get to people's behavior are far more complex beast. And in a sense, this is where the people that we work with, working with some pretty disengaged communities, and 
in a sense, what we're finding, a lot of people would tell you, oh, they just want to put bread on the table or they just want to look after their kids. Um, and there is this issue about how it is for me. And that was something that I was feeling quite interesting about the big society conversations, is that if you are trying to just constantly say, okay, so this is a reciprocal arrangement, you join in with this bit of volunteering and you'll get that back. I don't think that's what volunteering is all about and I don't think that's what social capital is about. But it is interesting that some um, people who are beginning to look at the big society do begin to see that level of reciprocity. So looking at Christakis's work, I don't know if anybody's had the opportunity to hear um, how him speak. It is a, a good speaking tour here at the beginning of the year. Um, and I think it started with, um, for me it was quite interesting, he was, he was talking about how, you know, if somebody dies in your family, who's next to go? You know, so the husband and wife die within 18 months of each other. It's quite understanding. It's about how people um, are seriously affected and then how the children are seriously affected. So it started with deaths in a family. And this particular model was about obesity and it's where the obesity clusters and so when his book was launched at the beginning of the year in America it basically said are your friends making you fat and in the UK it's are you making your friends fat because what he was finding is that you begin to normalise around the level of obesity or in our, the bit that I'm interested in of course is normalising around some sustainable behaviours and buying less and having less Louis Vuitton um, I have nothing against Louis Vuitton I just happen not to own any so it's quite handy so, um, so looking at the Christakis model were really very interesting. The thing about this is that it's quite pure. He begins to look at a community in its very finite way. But anybody who looks at fa um, Facebook knows that you know, you've got friends of friends of friends that there's nothing like a finite community. And so whereas Chrysakis can begin to see some of these clusters, um, I'm interested in, 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 in how the dye penetrates really and how that goes. And so looking at somebody else's work which is Robin Dunbar, which I find equally fascinating. And it's he because um, Christakis talks about three degrees of separation so me my family and then the next level and the next level and Dunbar comes at it from a different angle and seems to come up with the three degrees of separation. And so in a sense what it's finding is that I can influence five people and then 15 and then 35 but when it gets to 150 which is about what, um, what Dunbar is saying is about the size of um, I don't know a military unit or a, an SME before it begins to grow or some of the Yamish communities before they split off it's like beginning to work in communities of about 150 seems to be quite important. Um, and then I know there's lots of controversy about Thaler and Sunstein's work, but we, we're quite interested in the idea of how rather than using um, legislation to make things happen, how you can begin to, to use this idea of the nudge um, and um, listening to some of the lectures about how people don't think it's really is appropriate because it is, it is um, coming up with concepts and ideas, but for us we find it quite an interesting concept because in terms of sustainability, the appetite for legislation is limited and then the idea is well who's, the who's going to be the choice architect and for us that's why I was coming back to with how many planets do we have there has to be a moment when we begin to have a conversation with communities about what our limits are going to be because we can't wait until we've really messed the planet up before we decide what those limits are and so um, the cartoon of Homer Simpson choosing his fruit is something that's quite interesting it, it, it interests my son because of course he likes Homer Simpson but he doesn't like the fruit the other work that 
we are seriously looking at is the Barker, Sorrell and Kemp stuff about rebound because we do a lot of work on looking at energy saving, a lot of work on fruit and, and healthy eating but the truth of the matter is what is the rebound effect likely to be and I thought that this Tesco poster is really a, a typical um, instance of it. You know, We're working with people if you only do energy saving to save money then people will fly to Outer Mongolia on the proceeds and in a sense what we are trying to capture and some of our work is measure what would the rebound effect to be and Barker was saying it could be as much as 50% if you don't engage with it properly and look at that so just running an energy saving project without looking at the overall sustainability could be a bit of a problem so the sorts of things, the challenges that we're addressing in London is there is an issue. We looked at it, you know, population. We could, a number of people, Jonathan Porrett being one of them, let's reduce the amount of babies we have, which is fine providing you've had your kids. But if you haven't, you know, there is another issue there. So, you know, London's population is expecting to grow. Therefore, how could London be more sustainable? And there is this issue about the various cultures. If you take the Christakis model, about how we're actually going to work with all those various communities. There are so many diverse communities in London. We can't just say, this is the one diktat and let's get that, that, that sorted through one or two communities. And then there's this issue about, it's all very well talking about, let's not go for growth. Let's not have a a growth discussion like um, Robert, um, Tim Jackson was saying. But the issue is if you've got three of the five most deprived communities in the UK happen to be in, sorry, in England happen to be in London, there is an issue where economic progression has to occur. And so that's why we are quite interested in the Richard Wilkinson work about how most um, equal societies tend to do better. Um, of course, there's a lot of controversy about that one. So the growth is going to happen. You know, there is an issue about many people not coming to London because of the recession, but there is an issue for that. Um, and the sort of models that we like to use is not just telling people to change behaviour, not just having an awareness. We talk about encouraging and enabling and engaging and exemplifying. This model came from the Sustainable Development Commission, the national one. And I have to say, in terms of behaviour change, I've never found a simpler model that really works for me. That you have to cover off all of those bases in order to deliver change. And the thing is in London, the enabling bit, this is just a little graph that we did from the sort of dipstick that we did. Enabling just doesn't happen. There's loads of engagement, there's loads of leaflets, there's loads of telling people and preaching people how to do it, fewer fiscal incentives, far fewer real examples of my mate Larry actually doing it, living the dream, having the, you know, having the lifestyle that I could begin to aspire to, but actually enabling me, you know, having the waste disposal that I can actually deliver, encouraging me not to have carrier bags, encouraging me not just to buy stuff, and if you think about the big brother and all the, the stuff that I'm bombarded with every day, so the enabling function is the bit that is a real problem. The other thing that we have really found, um, and this is something that Mike Kelly from the National Institute of Clinical Excellence has been working on with smoking cessation and a lot of other obesity projects, is that preaching to people is an inadequate process. It's engaging and enabling people to be part of what they want to do. And it was really very clear, and the, the nice documentation was absolutely unequivocal, that you know, it worked with smoking cessation and it worked with obesity programs and it is likely to work with any community community engagement, which is why we love Time Bank's co-production, people taking charge. And it's really very important to us and part of our work is actually how we can begin to develop programs that can do that. 
Um, and of course, we love the peer-to-peer -peer work that Malcolm Gladwell has been talking about. And part of the Robin Dunbar stuff is how we can begin to limit that. It's just how friends influence friends. And I've always said that I've never bought anything from somebody who knocked on my door and asked me if I wanted to buy it. Therefore, why would a doorstepping campaign or just reading an advert in the paper make any difference to my life? And so that's why you know, it's, it's getting to friendship groups, the best business advice are other small businesses. And that, that's how I think... You know, taking um, all of these studies um, and making them, putting them to good use. So the sorts of things that we like to do is, is fun. It's this idea, in a sense, it's um, around, it's not just going to be the wealthier people that we engage with, it's how we engage. And the other thing that Robin Dunbar said that I didn't really talk about is how laughter really does perpetrate through and send those ripples. So cartoons and, and things that are really engaging and funny really work. So this is some work that we did with the Turkish community with their really well-established um, comedians, and we found that really quite exciting. Um, we found, I have to say, astonishingly high uptake using faith as a hook. If people can get up on a Sunday morning, go and pray, or if they can go for Friday and pray five times a day, and if that imam is supportive of that, we found that to be astonishingly uh, effective, um, not just in, in exit studies and focus groups, but also following up with questionnaires and people being able to take that forward. So in terms of, in terms of the Christakis model, we found to be faith to be really very useful. Um, and, um, and this is just some work that the um, focus group came back with, is um, how we related it to um, the Hindu scripts. Um, the other thing that we found, which is really quite fascinating, is how um, Nike did some work in New York about they gave some kids some sneakers, and then that meant Nike were really cool. So, um, and it was how young people tend to decide, I'm talking about 15 to 16 year olds, starting to wear their trousers down by the bottom of their underpants. They have created, you know, the bumpster and all of that sort of thing. Young people are far more influential in how to create a zeitgeist. And you wouldn't believe that, the way the government behave and pillory young people. But what we're finding is talking to um, some of the gangs in Islington and beginning to turn with the gang leaders and um, working with some very clever um, youth workers, I have to say, not my good self. Um, that's the other thing to be really very clear is that I don't go and work with communities. We get the peer-to-peer -peer working far more effectively. But we have found that through some of the community work that some young people can be seriously influencing at changing um, the zeitgeist in, in the communities that they live and work with. And, and so some of the projects that we're actively engaging in, Energise London um, is a project where we are attempting to measure how far the communities will begin to perforate. We're beginning to look at how it works in the likes of Westminster, what sorts of communities exist, and will that three degrees of separation hold up for climate change as well as it does for obesity or, or, or people who are being ill. Um, and the sort of things that, the, the, because this is an energy project, we tend to work with with wealthier communities because they've just got, quite frankly, more carbon to save, you know, less carbon to burn. Um, and the, the sort of things that we're looking at there is the infrastructural kind of things, but I'm really interested in the friendship groups that can begin to create the legacy beyond the lifetime of the project. Now, going back to the fact that the, 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 the wealthier people are more likely to engage, the project at Well London, I have to say, when we started the project, we're working in 20 tiny low super output areas, the most deprived communities in London. They don't like to measure themselves against their next door neighbour. They certainly do not want more things in their life. It was the lament of community cohesion that just hit me on the chin when we were working with, you know, we were going, we've got some money, we were expecting the jocular 
thing saying, oh, just give us a goal, you know, give us the money and that will be great love. Now, that, you know, that's the sort of thing that we were expecting. But no, people were actively engaging. The sort of projects that we found out is that in terms of support and infrastructure, that there's limited, there's some neat young people. Yep, there's a lot of work for that. Old people who are frail, a lot of work for that. But the engagement for the primary, you know, for people who are, say, 40 with no kids was limited. And the lament that they couldn't be part of their community was one of the hugest things that, that we discovered that would actually affect people's lifestyles. So what we've done, we came to 20 deprived most communities in, in, in London, and we started to work with them on obesity, health, physical fitness and mental health and well-being and it was really fascinating to begin to see a how people you know took to the project we don't delude the delivery ourselves we're working with local community groups scout groups schools YMCA did a lot of work with the local with, with the local groups and it's it's beginning to establish what works how we can begin to enable communities that enabling thing that we were talking about earlier to actually change their lifestyle to become more sustainable so these are the projects that we're working in. The results that we've been engaging with, as I said, we have worked in Tower Hamlets in, in the mosque there. Um, phenomenal, phenomenal um, uptake. It was a few years ago, um, but 94% of the participants were encouraged to lead a green lifestyle. And then we began to measure that um, six months later. And it's astonishing in terms of because we didn't tell people what to do, we got th these young people that you can see who were part from the community and talking. So it's peer-to-peer -peer work. Um, the thing that we would do differently now if we did this project is that we would use the Dunbar number more effectively and we'd work in much tighter, smaller groups. But at the moment, what we did here was we, we, we certainly worked with the imam and we worked with the, you know, the, in the madrasas and we worked with the small you know, numbers of people. But I think if we would do it again, we would have um, a much greater number of champions but fewer, um, fewer outreach for each person. Um, and we did a similar sort of program, but not the same, um, working with water and Hinduism because of um, the, the, the very powerful... Um, relationship there is between that spirituality and water um, and in here it wasn't an imam based it was about a lecture series about debate and discussion and engaging with people about how they would change um, their water consumption and with the water diaries um, to work on that um, and in a sense we reached a large number of people but the I have to be honest, again, I think that this was less productive than the work that we did in the East London Mosque, and I think it's because we hadn't quite got the Dunbar number sorted and we hadn't got how you'd begin to measure the community and how the effectiveness um, would occur. So it was, it was an effective programme because we used the particular um, links with the community, but I think in terms of measurement, we, we had a lot to go. The thing that we found now quite shocking in a way is that large corporates, a number of people would say, um, oh, large corporates, they're the ones the way forward, and SMEs, it's all about money. Um, we found that with small and medium-sized enterprises, they behave like individuals. And so social marketing and the peer-to-peer -peer having businesses influencing other businesses on this agenda, the best business advice being another business, we found to be shockingly effective. Um, we weren't expecting it when we started the programme. We were finding it really hard to engage. And then we started to use the businesses to engage themselves and to begin to create the hub. And it was, it was way more effective than I thought. The only difficulty I have to say is we've got a tipping point in reverse. There's a certain point where the economy is where now these businesses, you know, it's dog eat dog out there at the moment. And I think we've reached a kind of tipping point to get businesses aren't going to come and engage if they can't see it really part of their, um, of their zeitgeist. So the social marketing, I think, might have left 
felt its limits in the current climate. We're still going to see where those limits are, but um, that's something that I'm exploring at the moment. Um, but we did find that this particular work, because we worked only in the food sector and only businesses leading on to businesses, we found it to be um, as effect more effective than we thought it was going to be at the start. So this is us um, coming to the end. Um, in a sense, what I've attempted to show you is that we have, um, as I say, coming from ideas from other people, but... Um, the real thing for me is how you think you might have ideas that we could be using in our projects. Um, and the one thing I didn't talk about is we do go out of our tree to measure the effectiveness of what we've done to see if it's effective or not. Um, but whether it's um, as valuable, you know, it's just the getting the results sorted. Okay, thank you. Okay, well, um, as you know, this is part of the Sustainability in Practice lecture series. So we're looking at the practical um, manifestations of sustainability, and in this case in London. So I'd like to take some questions on uh, quite a wide range of uh, topics that Sam has covered. Uh, and one of the things I'm particularly interested in, and I wonder if, if you are and, and perhaps would share your views, is about the carbon footprint of, of the items that we saw at the beginning. Uh, so I'm going to take uh, questions in batches of three. And if you're over on the left-hand side, you're going to have to put your hand up high because I'm slightly screened from you. Um, so have you got questions? <laughs> so, I mean, we could um, just go into sort of like a bit of discussion about the most interesting bit or what you think was most relevant. For us, it's um, really difficult to, um, a lot of the, the work that we find with sustainability, it's, it's trying to work with the vacuum of theory, and for us it's trying to use the most effective theories, the most effective concepts and ideas, and in a sense it would be if anyone, you know, well what did you think, I have been to a number of lectures where nudge, for instance, has been completely panned, and I was kind of curious if anybody has got any, you know, well actually I really think that Stiglitz has got, has got, got off on the wrong foot, but um, it, it's really, if we start with the basis of the ideas that we're using, are there any other ideas that we should be using that we're not? Or is it just complete silence? Let's take a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> do we, yeah, we'll do these two. Thanks. Um, yeah, Samantha, it's uh, great that you, you know, LSX really sort of look at behavior change and understand, try and look at understanding behavior as a way of, of looking at sustainability. Do you think there's any ways or have you got any experience of really sort of sustainability issues becoming viral? So they're, they're kind of, they just spread anyway, you know, it's a really good idea that somebody picks up and then they sort of pass somebody else. And before you know it, it kind of just like rushes like wildfire through, through a community. I think, I think that, that is certainly the ambition. Um, but that's the bit that I was coming to about, it depends what you mean by sustainability. Um, I didn't go to complete town on that. Um, but for me, the problem I have with, say, carbon footprint is it's, it's about how we become our own reflective practitioners so that we can begin to make a choice, a consumer choice, based on sustainability. 
And I think we're a long way off that. And the sort of work that Victoria's been doing with um, trying to make it like Topshop or, you know, swishing or, you know, it really is okay to have second-hand clothes. But it depends what you mean about how viral. So I want to be more sustainable and I want to have a badge for it. And would that mean that I would, I, I would be more, um, that I would be, I don't know, get more partners? I mean, you think about what, what it is that we want, more friends, because we're part of a sustainability group. And I think that's, that's the issue, is what would be the reason for it to go through the wildfire? And, and for, for my son's generation, it's more about um, would he get more friends from that and would he not be a nerd for being part of that or caring? And so part of it is, for me is, you know, I, will, will I only shop at this shop because I know that they've got, you know, good, good cred to do that? Um, but my son would really say, oh, no, that, that's just nerds that buy that. So it's how you keep up with the latest fashion. So, so for me, it's if I were to say... Um, sustainability it's actually how you would begin to identify what that means going through communities and so the work that we're trying to do um, there's a guy called Mackenzie Moore and he talks about making that a really simple offer you know it's Omo Daz Echo Ver choose Echo Ver or you know it's actually saying to people that you need to explain very clearly what it is they have to do and my problem with that is if I were going to say um, you've got to do this this week. What happens if it changes? You know, and to be more sustainable, we actually have to do something different. You know, so, so Mackenzie Moore says, you've got to make the offer really very clear, like marketing. Um, and for us, it's not that. It's a lifestyle choice. So it's that bit garbled, but it does begin to address what you're saying. Okay, we'll take this lady at the back. Well, I think the lecture was very interesting. What's happening internationally in terms of... a uh, projects such as this. What I'm particularly interested in is in uh, developing countries and how sustainability is being developed there. I think um, the, the, the work that we've been... We're, we're um, London Sustainability Exchange and the reason why I made a, a kind of choice about 10 years ago to only work in London is that I could be more global. Um, I wanted to really concentrate my personal efforts in a geographic community to make it as consistently sustainable as I could make it. And it, Lord, it's big enough in London. Um, but the work that we've been doing, the international connection has been through diaspora communities. Um, and so having communities in London who might have uncles or cousins in, say, bits of Bangladesh that are flooding. And we found that to be very useful in terms of um, explaining um, issues around sustainability. The other thing that worries me greatly is that if I am saying from my pulpit we've got to buy less, um, how that actually affects emerging economies. And I think that's really very important. And i just give you the classic one that worries me quite a lot is um, been looking at, say, we want to buy local strawberries. But the way local strawberries are grown, the way in which some of the communities who pick the pickers who are treated and how badly they're treated, I think I would prefer to buy Kenyan beans from social enterprises. So, so in terms of what you're saying, so for me, it's a bit like Simon's question, linking that in. The problem is, it depends what you mean by sustainability. And for me, it's about caring and community and beginning to ratchet up that we're buying ethically and sustainably.
So the work that we're doing with our communities is about having that conversation about how you make those choices and working with the food co-ops that we support so that people can buy and eat better food and making sure that the food is sustained like, as, as sustainably as possible. That's not quite the answer to your question, but it is simply about how I, as a responsible consumer in London, affect the world. And that's where we work at it with our communities. Yeah, I find it really interesting how you said the things about just consuming less, because I think it's like a simple, uh, simple thing to, to think of to, to solve part of the, the, the sustainability question. But is it like this project, it's very interesting, but if that would be the solution and we would all do it, for example, from of today, I would buy nothing. Huh? Because I have everything. I would buy just necessities to keep me alive, buy my water, buy my food, just enough calories, everything. You know, I can last with my clothes, with everything, maybe make some travel, use the bus, but that would be it. But isn't that totally impos impossible in the current economic paradigm where we're in? The governments, you know, they all, they have a big, I don't know if they have the interest, but they have at least a few economical sense that this this will be a disaster. This will be a major disaster. And then I'm I'm thinking about like on the other hand, they're really pro. You know, depends on how you see it, but they're really pro sustainability. They're doing these projects. It's like I probably you, your project is also funded by by the government, but that's just side payments. Uh, while the real the real uh, solution would be a total change of paradigm to a different, uh, different system. So I'm really wondering if you maybe go yeah. a little bit more in depth uh, how you see that, so, like economically. So the work that, I um, um, apologize for not putting the slide up, but Richard Wilkinson's work, he's an epidemiologist from Manchester. Have you read The Spirit Level? Very interesting piece of work, and he did some specifically for the London Sustainable Development Commission. It's Kate Pickett. I, I'm sorry, but there's Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson for The Spirit Level. And what he was saying in some of his work. Now, I have to be honest, there's controversy around his work. What I hear him saying is that he is an epidemiologist. He has said that the more equal societies do better. It's a bit like saying those communities that have access to cleaner water get less cholera. So that's what he was saying in some of his work. And he has said that the, the, the studies that he had and the data sets that he has collected indicate that if you come from a society where it is that you know you have flatter income income curves that people are healthier and happier and what he has indicated that economic growth GDP and wages have actually met their limit in delivering health wealth and happiness and it depends what people want out of getting more money. And so in a sense, in answer to your question, the sort of things that we have been thinking about is, okay, Mr. Wilkinson, Professor Wilkinson, you've said that more equal societies do better. What would that actually do to our economic progress? And what would that actually do to our economy? And in a, in a sense, it is turning the way in which we think about e economics on its head. And in a sense, 
the reason why I find Wilkinson's work so interesting is we are at a point in time where we need to think very differently about how things are. And in a sense, uh, my son was telling me how he thought that economists were a bit like high priests in Aztec um, America, where we, you know, we'll give them lots of riches in the hope that they'll make more sacrifices, in which case they'll make you know, the sun turn around a bit quicker or a bit more effectively. And we want more models, we want more theory, and the truth of the matter is we probably need to have a big, deep breath, stop, think, look at the data sets, and see what we really want from economic growth, what we really want our, you know, our, our economy to do for us. And the truth of the matter is, most politicians will tell you they want people to be happy. But of course, I don't know if you've read um, Adam Phillips on this, and he's saying, actually, we don't want happiness, it's the pursuit of happiness that really matters. But, you know, for, for, for me, I think... That there's, there's enough work out there that's beginning to shout out, hey guys, GDP has met its limits. And that's something that we need to begin to think about. Mm. And if I can take the liberty of adding to that the, the work of Lord Layard here at the no, school, yeah. if you have a look at his happiness work, um, and a plug for the mappiness uh, application oh, yes. on your iPhones. Uh, which is measuring happiness or how you feel at any point in time compared to perhaps some environmental indicators, where you are, who you're with, uh, perhaps a street uh, scene, you take a photograph. Mm. So have a look at the mappiness um, because the, if you feed into that in a couple of years' time, we'll get data back mm. Uh, from that. Could do a whole lot of happiness. It's Adam Phillips's work about how it's the pursuit of it and the, the hunger and the appetite for happiness, which is more, far more important than happiness itself. But yes, let's get... Um, so we've got two questions in the front row here. That's great. I just wanted to follow on from the previous point that was made about the distribution of wealth amongst a community. And I wonder if there's another variable there that's not been considered in looking at the orientation towards individualism and the orientation towards collectivism. Because I think that the main challenge that we have in a Western, like growing up in a Western society, is that when we're brought up through a school system or through any other type of system, we're taught that we as individuals are, in, are responsible for achieving our own wealth, our own everything that we can get throughout our lifetime and I think that that puts us in conflict with being able to accept that we have less because I just I think that there's something to do with the orientation towards that in that when yeah. people see sustainability it's an encroachment on their individual decision making exactly yeah I, th I think that's where I'm asking you to engage with me and think about this because um, I, I was really intrigued about the reciprocity concept you know, I pay my taxes in order to get um, such and such. You know, and, and, and this is where I am with tuition fees, I have to say. I think it's appalling because the, the idea that you only do go to higher education in order to get your own wealth and amass your own wealth to me is a nonsense. The whole community requires you to be more aware, more skillful, more knowledgeable, more thinking, more reflective. You know, we all need it if we're going to be able to take on the great challenges that face us. And so the idea of only having that kind of, you know, 
direct reciprocity, you know, I give this and I get that back. Um, you know, where would that be if, um, you know, if I had malaria and I was going around, uh, I don't think you can, you can go around giving that, but, you know, it's a question of how, you know, how you treat diseases and you hand them on. You know, it's, it's a, for me, where community comes in. And um, for, for the work that was really quite shocking with the, um, with the, 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 the wellbeing project is that community cohesion and how they want, people want to engage. We met so many people who wanted the opportunity to be part of their community. And that was worth, you know, as the, the, the advert, you know, is worth a lot of money. It was priceless. And that's what they were looking for. The problem that we have is how do you begin to fund that kind of project, which is all the big society thinking. Does that, and so the sort of stuff that we were doing, looking at, um, the reason why community is so important is that we aren't islands and that we are more influenced than we think about what our neighbours think of us. And we're more influ you know, influencing with our carbon footprints and all of those sorts of things. And I would say this leads us back to the economics point because economics is based on rational choice and that the individual makes a rational it's choice. And it's, I, it's I definitely understand that, but <laughs> there needs to be that link made more clearly that can be understood at the community level. Mm. Well, there is certainly some work on that, and certainly the RSA are looking at and that. That was like the Peter Hall um, um, social capital conversation that I was telling you about and how that's being updated. I think it's really very important, and the mappiness work is really sector, it doesn't have any value. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think the rational choices issue, that's where nudge was really very important. It was basically saying that people, you know, it's obvious that you should, you should just go into the company pension scheme because it gives you the money back. And how many people that I have to sit on to tick that box and fill that form in? You know, it's, it's how you opt in and how, you know, the rational choices, it's, it's, not, it's not as obvious as all that and it's not only about money. Very, you know, I, from from the community work that we're doing, it's less to do with money. I was so shocked. You know, it's to do with how the community hangs together that would seem to be so far more important. There's more. Thank you. Um, I'm still trying to wrap my head around what uh, LSX does completely, but it sounds like a lot of education and um, metrics and measurement. And so, could you kind of help me? Um, how would you or LSX define a sustainable London and say? 50 years or uh, well, 80 years? Yeah, um, the, 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 uh, just to be very clear on our model, because um, we, Victoria asked me to talk about how e the, the role that economics plays in, in our projects. But what we tend to do is we take difficult theories, policies, and we attempt to bring people together, collaborations, that could be people who know a lot about it, people who don't know a lot about it, um, come together to actually make a thing happen, to make a change happen in a community, and that could be a business community, or it could be um, a community through the mosque, or it could be a community geographically. And we, we do that very difficult thing, which is trying to make you know, people happy in certain communities or well in certain communities. So we bring some influential collaborations together, and that could be the local communities. And then when we've done that, we've measured it, and then we share that and we work as we're doing those projects we bring the best theories to bear what we're finding is, is, is the policy action gap was the really most difficult thing so we could have the mayor's way strategy said Londoners shall do this, this and this but it's actually how it gets delivered and how it gets translated that we find the most challenging taxing thing so that, that's, that's our change model and then what we try and do um, is constantly look at policies and see how we can improve upon them as a consequence of what we've done and so for us and this is kind of beginning to adhere to um, sort of like hint at rather was that for us sustainable London would be our job would be finished when people reflect in the same way that Simon was just talking about reflect and 
be able to make their choices as a consequence of a sustainable rubric. You know, how they begin to... So Londoners and London's organisations and London's businesses, if you listen to, um, say, Yvonne Ryden, um, who used to, who's work here, it's now at UCL, is if, if organisations behave sustainably and Londoners behave sustainably from making rational or irrational choices around sustainability, then I would say that that's where our work would be done. Right, okay. So we just... Uh, move the mic back to the second row. Two. And then I know we've got a couple of people. Should we get the, should we get them all in so we don't? Yeah, miss we them can. Out? Yeah. So go your question first. Um, going back to a, uh, a more practical point, moving back from the philosophical aspect, I can't remember where I saw this or even what city it was in, but there was this initiative that looked at going back to the point you mentioned before with getting your strawberries locally versus your sustainably sourced beans from Kenya. I remember seeing this initiative that looks at some sort of online resource available to everyone that they can compare their different products in terms of how sustainable they actually are. Like, do, do I buy the organic local produce or do I buy the community-driven African commune produce that gets shipped over in carbon credits and whatnot? Is, are you aware of any initiative like that going on in London? And if so, are, do you have any links with it? Do you know how it works? Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, can you just put your hands up there? Yeah, great. That's it, okay. Um, hi. Uh, some people have said that um, <clears throat> in order for us to be totally sustainable, we need to move away from selling products and instead sell services. So instead, like, you rent your clothes instead of buying them. <clears throat> I was just wondering if you've, um, like, uh, got any information from communities and how they react to that sort of idea. Okay. And was there another hand up over in that corner? Yeah, that's cool. Oh, no, there's one over there. Um, I, I think um, you hold it up to I'm interested in what you're saying about communities responding. And to my mind, some of the most unsustainable communities are um, very separate from Tower Hamlets and places where I live. And I wondered about having a project in Mayfair or Kensington. Yes. Um, um, I, did, I did say, but maybe I didn't get it really clear. Um, when we're doing energy projects, we tend to work where the higher carbon footprints are Haringey, Richmond, Westminster. So for the energy projects, we tend to focus as where the fruit... Let's say it's easier to please your funders because the, you know, the carbon production in the first place is so high. But for energy, we've worked in, um, in those areas, Haringey. But for well-being, um, so, so, so what we're trying to, what I, what I was saying is when community cohesion is required, when it's health and well-being, eating better food, that's when we've worked in um, the, the most deprived, low super output areas. So I'm not saying for a, for a second that poorer people don't need to look to the aspirational stuff because, you know, um, the, the issues that we've been um, working with is when people want to buy more, you know, contract conversions. But I think it's, it is really very important that we work with wealthier communities for certain issues. Um, yeah. Did you want to come back on that? Uh, just a quick word that maybe uh, following your definition of well-being, the people in Kensington and Mayfair are not very happy. 
No. <laughs> no, and, and I think, I mean, that, that, was, that was something else that I was really quite interested, just, just to go on a little aside, um, that the Wilkinson work looked at the pull of consumerism as a consequence of inequality. Um, he did a specific piece for London, which is on the LSDC website. It's not part of his spirit-level work, it's an additional piece, which is looking at how inequality, and income inequality in particular, can actually get, pull people through so that they want to consume more, which is, is really quite fascinating. Um, 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 then looking at um, the question about selling services, what we've been doing in our well London communities, and we're certainly doing it with our energy projects, is this idea of co-production, and I started to allude to it, which is like time banks. Um, and what we're beginning to find is, um, so, so my, my best class that we do is where um, we have a couple of people being taught how to make something like spaghetti bolognese with lots of vegetables in it, etc. And then what they do is they do like a dinner party and they tell somebody else how to make it and they tell somebody else how to make it. So we're selling services. It's a bit like, I don't know, I, I was given once a, a revolting piece of dough to make a piece of bread and then halve it and give it to somebody else. It's that sort of like sharing pyramid style um, kind of food thing. But what we found with this idea of time banks and co-production is it creates the most delicious delicious community spirit which can go well beyond the lifetime of the project and we don't need any funding anymore because people actually go and do that for, for themselves. Um, and so your idea about products and services, I think that's the bit where I was coming to, is what can we have more of that we feel good about? And that's the, that's the challenge for you and your careers and your lifestyles, is we begin to have something, what can I have more of that won't wreck the planet? And, and, and you know, sex, HIV is an issue, academic citations is all very good, but actually, you know, and those, are the, those are the only two that, we, that we've beginning to come up with, but it's, it's to do with you know, decorating each other's houses, that community spirit is something that we can do that doesn't, doesn't cost the earth, if you see what I mean. So I think that you're actually right, it's, it's less about products, and why would we want products in the first place, it's like displaying our worldly goods to show that we're actually better people and therefore we can get more mates for it. I mean, that's what Robin Dunbar, some of his work is really quite interesting, to begin to look at why we want to amass all of these various things around us. Um, going back to the first question about what governments are going to say if I'm going around, you know, it's just, you know, if GDP doesn't continue to go up. Um, so then we've got um, the idea, you said about the carbon. The, the, the ethic and consumer website is something that I find quite interesting, but the trouble I have with a lot of this is that I would never use carbon as a proxy for sustainability. It is one element of it. And fair trade is really very important. Um, and um, there's a whole load of other things. Like, you know, um, I, I did hear that, um, I don't know, Tesco's or something had got um, the, the, the low carbon egg, which happened to be battery. You know, so for me, it's the tension, so consumer choices that we're armed with a range of bits of information. And that's why um, I've been looking at Sustain, the Alliance of Food and Farming, London Food Link, to see how they can label products in a very holistic way, because it's not just about carbon that's really very important. It's, it is animal husbandry, and it is about, it is about you know, how well it was raised, and it is about um, who packed it. Um, the Kenyan bean issue that I was alluding to earlier and was reading a book about that which really worried me is that Marks and Spencer, their just in time policy is that you have the beans so that you can have it. So I want my beans to go when I'm leaving work and I go shopping. That means that some worker in Kenya, in Kenya had to leave work themselves at nine o'clock at night and then risk going home in a dangerous journey home because I just wanted that just in time bean. 
So, you know, it's, it's being armed with appropriate range of information rather, you know, and, and I think that was the first question is, is how we can be effective consumers with, and, and actually it starts with, um, I didn't bring the slide um, and maybe that would have been really very good. I no longer measure carbon waste um, and all of those sorts of things. It's about responsibility. It's about how I know I've taken responsibility and how I have respect for those around me. And for me, an indicator of responsibility is the number of people who are volunteering or the number of people who vote. Um, that's far more important to me than just pure recycling level levels or waste production levels, if you see what I mean. So it's how we measure it seems to be quite important. Okay, I'm just going to take the last uh, few questions. So uh, if you've got questions, please raise your hand so I can see. And we'll take these two. Any other Thanks questions? Thank you. Just to follow on, on your, um, uh, your answer just now about the effect of your measurements. Um, for instance, in Tower Hamlet, it seems like a wonderful project. But what we didn't hear was what was the impact? Well, how do you measure it? Oh, and, okay. and why would I buy it? Okay, okay. And Uh, my, well, this question, there may be a couple here. Um, it relates to community cohesion, and you know, we kind of look back to the past and always sort of consider the you know, communities of the past in London especially as being very cohesive and something that we kind of hope that we'll sort of get back to at some point. Is that very much, you know, the, the breakdown of a community is, is something that we think is very much about our ingrained consumption and our needs sort of to almost start ignoring our human needs, our basic human needs, you know, because, you know, we have something that replaces them, which is basically consumption and status and those sorts of things. And I'm kind of wondering whether there are ways of trying to help us understand more about those fundamental human needs and hopefully by recognizing them, we live them and we become more cohesive as societies and, and communities. The second part is then, is, is, is slightly separate, but it's, it relates to some of these organizations that appear to generate um, community cohesion. And you look at the transition towns movements and, and, and similar grow you know, programs and things like that, which on the face of it, you know, they probably have a lot to learn from what you've been talking about, but somehow I think they're probably missing that because their, their focus is too narrow. But, you know, what do you think that they could do to actually improve the impact of their, you know, their change programs? So if I start with the last bit first about transition towns. Um, we do less work with transition towns. Um, and the reason is, is that we find that transition towns are very effective at doing their work themselves and they don't need us to help them because they're getting on with it. Um, we did do some with them um, and the issues was kick-starting into making sure what they did was actually most effective. So it's this thing that I was talking about being a reflective practitioner. And the one thing I would say about, you know, there's so much been going on, 1010, the Guardian, encouraging people to grow their own food. As though subsistence farming was something that we were going to be hearkening back to for London. You know, I, there's no way I could grow my own food to feed my good self, you know, let alone the rest of my family. There's absolutely no way. Um, and, you know, I could feed a few slugs. I'm very good at that. Um, it is not going to be cheaper to grow my own food, and it's not going to be, you know, any healthier, all of those sorts of things, and the carbon footprint of all the water that I use, etc. And so the thing that, um, in terms of transition town, and that's where the bioregional stuff and the actual measurement is, what is the most effective thing to do? And I'm, I'm saying there's so much work that we do. Um, the, the DEFRA, DEFRA um, has done some very, you know, the Department of, of, what's it, Farming, Rural Affairs. Um, 
know, they gave us lots of money, don't worry, I should know who my funders are. Um, but they've done some really good stuff about the willingness and the most effectiveness of the things that we're prepared to do. And I've spoken to many people from Transition Town saying, oh, I've drove my hard car here, but it's okay, I've got the recycling in the back. You know, a real understanding about how the most effective thing that they can be doing, and, you know, so it's actually the willingness. And the first one is flying. Sorry, guys, flying. There's just no getting away from it. I cannot, cannot justify it in my good, you know, so, so now the Puritan that I am not, um, I decided not to fly, you know, I haven't done it for five years, and I, and I probably will once again, but I think just that cutting down, it's like eating meat less, so one day a week not eating meat and those sorts of things. I don't want to be hair shirt about it, it's got to be fun, it's got to be, but for me, so the thing that I would say to a transition town, sorry, completely overrunning, um, is this issue about finding out what the most effective thing people are prepared to do and really capitalising on the willingness. So the work that we've done here with Rotary Clubs or Transition Town, finding the most carbon efficient thing can do and what would really work. So there's no point in me saying to people don't fly if they really aren't going to contemplate it, but it's finding that. So that, that's, it's the metrics are really very important. Um, and then the question that you asked about Tower Hamlets, yeah, we do measure its death. Awfully sorry, I think somebody picked up quite rightly, we do, we do that. You know, benchmark on the happiness, benchmark the well-being, benchmark how much fruit people eat. Um, and the most delicious thing, the story about Tower Hamlets for me is, you know, we did... Um, we like to do supply and demand, so we decided that this community um, wanted to um, eat better food. We wanted to create the demand for good food in the community. So we did these cooking classes, and we've created the cohesion around good food. And then we provided them with the food. We provided them with the food co-op, and we worked with the retailers, so the retailers provided the good food for people to, to eat. So that's what we began to do, and we had a little cafe called Cafe Relax, where we, we supported people and volunteers to work in the cafe, and we also supported social marketing, Christakis, people going out to the community, like Barefoot Doctors, encouraging people to come, engage with the Keep Fit classes and all of that. So that's the sort of work that we did. And um, what was beautiful is some of the metrics are not just people being more cohesive, but they actually got jobs. Cafe Relax has got a commission from <coughs> Canary Wharf to actually feed Canary Wharf. So we've got more jobs on the back of the cafe that we set up, so Cafe, cafe Relax is really effective. The only issue is with Cafe Relax is the people are so poor in that community, they don't want to go and buy a cup of tea. So we've had to relocate the cafe itself, but we're still working on how we can create legacy for that particular project. And we measure it in terms of at the beginning, it's University of East London, how people are at the beginning, how they are in the middle, and how they are at the end, in kind of like Dr. Foster's hospital admissions and all of that sort of stuff. So it is a bit done to death on the measurement front, but the truth is, hopefully, we're learning with this integrated programme. I mean, this is, I think, one of your point. It's not just, you know, I will come along, get some training, go away, thank you very much. It is actually far more integrated. And it's those unintended consequences of a project that are really very important. <coughs> and I've forgotten what the first one was. Uh, it's very much about human needs. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, I think, to be perfectly honest, um, there's loads of stuff, um, as Peter Hall was doing, and, and how, we, how community social capital can be measured. The RSA, Matthew Taylor, I was doing a blog on it just the other day. Um, for me, it, the big society issue, it's just coming back, and it's time that we all revisited it. And it comes back to the very ancient stuff of, you know, get my needs met and then move on to the next one. So that's why I quite like the Robin Dunbar work, because it begins to look at the very basic stuff. We aren't, though, 
cave people. So we need to be able to relate it to where we are now. Um, so just to begin to say that it's all about money, sex and death, I just don't think is, is, is enough. Really. So um, that's somewhere where we're beginning to go again. As I said, the most recent stuff that we've been doing is that that people did lament, they did demand cohesion in our well London projects, and that's low what we tried to deliver them through the things like the co-production that you were asking about. I think <laughs> we can carry on, but I think people might need to leave. That's great. <laughs> Any final burning questions? One final burning question. But people can leave. Don't don't feel ashamed if you've got. To we've get got. To the we've point. got. We're okay until eight o'clock. Mm. And we'll wrap up after this question. Yes. Well, I'm wondering, like, uh, is the LCX also something doing? Oh, sorry, something oh, yeah. doing with uh, the uh, sustainable energy provided for for people by themselves? You you were talking about food production. I can totally understand it, but uh, there are some some people uh, telling that that the next revolution will be a revolution in energy supplies as well, yes, for sure, for where sure. there's. How is that progress going? Because yeah. I can, I can totally like see London as a front runner on, on yeah. that. Um, to, to be absolutely clear on this, the grid and getting energy from power stations is quite inefficient. Um, now, I'm not saying that um, coming off grid is the only thing that we have to do. So, at the moment, and I believe that the um, listen. My understanding from reading around it is that the national grid in this country was created to be able to cater for emergencies, wartime and things like that. There is an argument that we should be able to, where we can, is um, co-support each other and provide energy um, from each, um, each, each dwelling or each building. And that's where... Um, that's where things like the feed-in tariff, because what's happening at the moment is, if I have my own windmill and I make more than I need, I can't sell it back to you in an efficient way. And EDF and all the various power people, power cable people say, yeah, but you give me dirty energy, you don't give me the energy that I can use in the grid. And I, I, I do absolutely understand that. But there is an issue around renewable technology that is going to be incredibly useful. The reason why I, I keep going back to it, it's not just about direct energy, it's also about how we use energy and what we buy and the food that we eat and all of those sorts of things. But there is definitely an issue in supporting a demand in London for renewable energy, which is why I um, worked with the Mayor's office to create a demand for renewables by including a requirement for all new developments to have renewables in their planning application. Um, now, that's had unintended consequences of people just doing community heat and power and they're using gas. You know, what we wanted to do was to try and make the cost of renewable come down by having more and more renewables in London. Um, so, for instance, the evidence was that in China, because um, the government had a real dash for renewables, that the price of each renewable... Like, do you remember mobile phones are much cheaper than they were 10 years ago, or calculators and all of these sorts of things. What we wanted to do was begin to create the technology that would make it far cheaper. Now, it, what I've just said to you about having less and having less of stuff is really very important because you've got to put in the cost of making the renewable in the first place. But the thing that you asked in the first place is how we can take more responsibility for the own power that we consume and generate it is something that I think we can go a, long, a lot further towards, and that's part of the relationship with the power companies. 
Okay, one, this is the last question, sir, but please go ahead. Uh, with, the, um, with the power, maybe if you worked on 12 volts and charging 12 volt batteries, then... Uh, I, I think what, what, there's so much... That would uh, make it off grid. There, there and is so much. Run on 12 volts anyway. It's just making making Laptops it happen. And everything. Yeah. I think but the, the the thing is a bit like the Betamax story and the VHS story and the which gauge of the railway that you use. I mean, the problem that we've got is we we're we're a bit landed with what we've got. Um, and I think. But most things run off 12 volts now. So. Phones, laptops, and everything. And so there's blessed adapters to change it. Yeah. So. Um, uh, I have to say, I'm no longer a politician and in power, um, but um, yeah, let, let, let's work on that one. It's just a question of how we can make the market make it work. Yeah, I, okay. I'm, I don't have. A, I don't have and any. How, how, you, how do you see, like, in terms of the financial markets being sustainable? Because I read somewhere that to be sustainable, you need growth and everything. Don't well, that's you? what that's what I was saying. That's what that's what I, I think we need to turn it on its head. It's it's uh, they want. For the economy to get stable or something, we all got to buy more. Basically. Yeah, yeah. That, that is I, th I think Sam's touched on the consumption issue, and that's uh, one of the key. Do you want to just uh, come? But it'll make the financial market I'm absolutely the, the thing I'm trying to um, infect your brains with is to begin to try and think of a market that doesn't require you to keep having more and to have a whole economy, a taxation system. There is a Macaulay principle, if anyone's read um, Anatole Koletsky's stuff, you know, is that we are requiring an economy that is predicated on inflation and interest rates to keep us all going. And I think it's you are the generation that's going to make it more, um, more feasible to have an economy that isn't predicated on that. And that's the sort of thing, that, that is our next challenge. There is absolutely no, that, I believe that to be true. It's a bit like I believe that our economy is predicated on a certain element of unemployment, you know, so that, you know, we all do really crap jobs because we don't want to not have one, you know. <laughs> okay. So, so leaving you with that challenge of an economy not based on consumption, thanks for your attention. Uh, just to let you know, the next uh, lecture in this series is on the 9th of November when we welcome Satish Kumar from Resurgence magazine to the school. Uh, and all of the lectures from this year and last year, including Tim Jackson, Jonathan Porritt, Andrew Sims, some of the names that Sam's mentioned, they're all downloadable. You can uh, listen to them from the LSE website. Thank you very much.